Well, welcome, guys. This is um, the fifth week of the study, so for those of you guys who are here for the first time, there may be a little bit of catching up to do, but I think you guys will be okay uh, to follow where we're at. So we're talking about covenant theology, um, which is important for us because it's through covenant that God establishes relationships with man. And so we saw God established that relationship with Adam in the garden. Um, He gave Adam his covenantal task of extending the boundaries of the kingdom of God to cover the whole earth. Uh, Adam failed in this, brought all of mankind under the curse of the covenant, which we're still living under. And then last week we talked about the flood of Noah and how that really sets the pattern of God dealing with the sinful world through patterns of judgment, redemption of his people, and then new creation. And that's kind of the grand scheme of what God is doing. Ultimately, the promise of God is that he will judge the earth through Christ, that through Christ he will bring his chosen people through the judgment, and then through Christ he'll establish the new heavens and the new earth. So that's where we're at so far. Tonight we're going to finish up with Noah, and we're going to talk about Uh, the covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood, um, which we call just easy, the Noahic covenant or the uh, common grace covenant. So if you guys want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 8, we'll read from there. And first, though, I will pray and then we'll read. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gathering together of your people. Lord, we thank you for your grace upon us, for the fact, Lord, that you do not deal with us according to our sin, Lord, but that you are so very long-suffering with us, that you're patient towards us, Lord. We thank you that uh, you have communicated to us through your word and chiefly through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I do pray that you would please let us heed what your word has to say, that we would be eager to dig more and more deeply into Scripture, to learn and dive into the deep things of the Scriptures, Lord, that we would better understand our salvation in Christ, our reconciliation in Him, and um, our covenant relationship that we have with you through Him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so tonight we're in Genesis, and we're going to be reading beginning in chapter 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, and as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, 
This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters never again shall become a flood to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of my covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Hey guys, how's it going? Do you need an outline, Elizabeth? Yes, yeah, thank you. Okay. He forgot something. Uh, it's all right. And Dom, did you grab an outline, Melania? Yeah. All right, I have one. Okay. All right, so like we talked about last week and like I mentioned briefly, um, God sent the flood over the earth as this execution of judgment on the world that had become so wicked and so depraved and so unholy that it actually came to the point where it threatened the existence of God's righteous people. You remember that in the garden, after man's sin, God made that promise to Adam and Eve saying that his offspring, the, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent, that the righteous uh, offspring would crush the wicked offspring. And it got to the point where the wickedness of the earth was so great that uh, that righteous seed, the existence of it, was in jeopardy. And so God responded by judging the whole earth by waters, except for Noah and his immediate family, who he delivered by covenant through the ark. So God's delivered his people through the judgment, and he's brought them into this type of new creation. Remember we talked last week about just kind of the uh, the imagery of uh, getting out of the ark. It was very similar to the creation narrative, and it sort of implies uh, this kind of new creation, that God is doing something like what he did at creation. But also remember and we mentioned this last week as well, in Second Peter, Peter writes that we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this is a type of new creation, but it's not a type of new creation in which righteousness dwells. So while the earth is cleansed, uh, you know, the wicked have been wiped out from the earth, it's still a fallen world. It's still under the curse of the covenant of life. Man is still sinful. And so even if um, you have the, the wicked wiped out, it, it kind of stands to reason that the fundamental problem, it still remains. And so you would think that after a certain amount of time, after the flood, the earth would get repopulated, and then man would continue in his sinfulness and continue to spiral down and down, and it would become just like it was before the flood of Noah, and it would make it necessary for God to once again judge the earth. But what God does uh, is he establishes a new covenant order to uh, to govern over this creation that had been cleansed by the flood judgment. That's how he addresses the problem. And essentially, the whole purpose of this covenant that God made with Noah is... Uh, to provide a measure of stability on the earth for God to fulfill his redemptive purposes, for God to fulfill that promise of Genesis 3. He's setting up the world, even though it's fallen and cursed, as a generally stable place for man to live and for the godly, righteous seed to, uh, to continue in the earth. Does that make sense? All good so far? If you guys have questions or anything, just, you know, stop me, raise your hand, that's fine. So again, that's the purpose of this Noahic covenant. And it's not, it's not a negation of the curse of sin. Remember we talked about, at, after the fall, um, man 
God fully executed the curse of the covenant on man. Remember, God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And that's exactly what happened. Total, comprehensive death. Exile from the garden, cast out of God's presence, cut off from the tree of life. We talked about all that. And we said that God, once he threatens that curse, when he enters into covenant, he says, these are the terms. God can't go back on that. So the curse of the covenant of life still stands. We're still under the curse of sin. But what this covenant with Noah does is it sort of, you could say it sort of blunts the effects of the fall in that man is restrained in his wickedness. And the earth, even though the ground is cursed because of Adam, it still functions in a manner that's consistent with the laws of nature that God set up. It still is cyclical and follows certain patterns that man can study and understand. And so you have this uh, covenant of provision that God makes with Noah. And also, it's a reaffirmation of the promise that God made in Genesis 3. When he said, I'm going to bring a seed of the woman into the world to crush the serpent. When God makes this promise with Noah, saying that, you're going to have consistency in the earth. You're going to have seed time and harvest. And we're going to talk more detail about all of this. But when God makes this promise, it reaffirms that the human race is going to continue. That righteous line is going to continue. And that's very important. So we talked about, uh, you know, early on in this course, in the very first week, we were defining all of our terms. And we talked about what a covenant is. And we laid out that... Generally speaking, a covenant consists of five essential elements. Um, promises, precepts, federal headship. I don't want to look at my notes to try to remember. Um, federal headship, sanctions, and delegation of dominion. Those are the five major elements of a covenant. And we'll go through, and I just want to look at what those elements are here in this covenant with Noah, what their implications are, and how that works out for redemptive history, and how it also impacts us still today. So the first thing to look at are the promises of the covenant. This is what God obligates himself to do. This is the I will of the covenant, right? Covenant functions as I will on God's part, and you will on man's part. So the promises are the I will, and we see kind of uh, three sections of promise that God lays out here when he makes his covenant with Noah. The first one is in chapter 8, verse 21. It says that the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So the first promise that he says I will never again curse the ground because of man. And this kind of language, it, it's not even referring directly to the flood that had just come, but the language of this promise calls us back to the garden. Because you remember when Adam sinned, God said to Adam when he was pronouncing the curse, cursed is the ground because of you. And so... What this element of the promise of the Noahic Covenant is, it's more referring to just the cataclysmic, uh, dramatic fall of mankind that brought a curse on the whole earth. That's uh, what God's making a promise concerning here, that because of Adam's sin, the whole earth became cursed. And what God is saying here is essentially to limit the curse of sin to the fall in Adam, that there would be no sin that man will ever commit that's going to have the same kind of impact that Adam's sin had. There's going to be no sin that's going to call down this comprehensive, full-orbed curse on all creation ever again. Again, he's not ending the curse of sin, but he's limiting it um, so that, yeah, yes, the earth is still a dangerous place. The ground is still cursed. Man is still sinful. Work is still burdensome. Nature is hard to subdue. That's all still true. But because of the promise of the covenant, it's going to be more predictably so. And again, like I said, this serves that purpose of stability, that 
although things are not made perfect, things aren't fully restored, uh, there's not this constant worry that all of a sudden man is going to sin and then you're going to have this second sort of fall. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the first, uh, the first element of the promise. And there's, not, there's not going to be another sin of man that's going to have the same kind of impact that Adam's sin had. Second promise, you go down one verse, verse 22, and we read God saying that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So once again, like I mentioned at the beginning, God is promising here continuity of the regular cycles of the earth. And in such a way that man is going to be able to discern, to learn, to observe, and to apply the laws of creation or the laws of nature in order to bring about a measure of human flourishing. And like I said, the purpose of this covenant is to provide stability for man, to make things in this cursed, fallen, chaotic creation stable enough for man to survive, for life generally and broadly to flourish on the earth. And so part of that is that the earth isn't going to be this unpredictable place where you never know what's going to happen next. Um, you know, the flood was something that was absolutely unpredictable, right? This was a supernatural event. The only way that Adam knew about it is because God told him this was going to happen. It was absolutely unnatural and unpredictable. But what God is saying is that this creation would exhibit continuity, regularity, and a general, if not perfect, you know, not perfect, but a general uh, predictability on the earth. And this also serves to make things like agriculture possible. You know, God says, uh, just following this, that he's giving us every green plant for food, giving us all the animals for food. All of that is, again, designed to allow life to continue on the earth. To allow God's people especially, but all mankind generally, to continue to populate the earth, to survive on the earth while God accomplishes his redemptive purposes. That life is sustainable on the earth and man will be able to learn and observe in order to do that. So that's the second major promise of this covenant. And then the third one sort of, sort of ties it all together. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, God continues and says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said that this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So this promise is specifically addressing, so we had the first one, you know, never again will I curse the ground because of man. That's addressing just kind of the broad fall in Adam and all the effects of it. Secondly, uh, it's dealing with the earth is going to be predictable, work in cycles, life is going to be able to expand and continue and flourish. And this third one is particularly dealing with the flood judgment itself, where God says that never again will he destroy the earth by flood. And if you remember last week, we talked about how the flood was a type of the final judgment. It was to foreshadow what the final judgment will be like with all of God's enemies being wiped out that this was a unique, supernatural, global, cataclysmic judgment. And so what God is promising here is that it amounts to that God will never again, until all things are completed, until that final day of judgment, he will never again bring about this catastrophic, global, comprehensive judgment like he did with the flood. So until... The, the curse of the covenant of life, the curse of Adam, which is that, you know, finally fully cut off completely from God, eternal death, second death, that's the curse of that covenant. Until God fully executes that final stage of the curse, there's not going to be another 
worldwide judgment on the whole human race. And it's interesting, in verse 15, he specifically refers to the waters never again becoming a flood to destroy all flesh. And it's interesting because throughout scripture, there's water is... uh, is symbolic in different ways. If we're talking about a river, remember we talked about this in the very beginning with the rivers that flowed out of Eden. Eden. Rivers typically symbolize life and fruitfulness and blessing, but the sea, it symbolizes danger and death and destruction. That's why in Revelation, when John has the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, it says there's the river of life flowing from the throne of God, but there is no sea. So you have water kind of with these different sort of symbolic uh, significance. And when God says here that never again will the waters become a flood, the waters on the earth will remain, but it kind of brings up this imagery of God holding back the water so that they're not used to overwhelm and to judge. And in the Psalms and the prophets, you have the language of you know God setting the boundaries of the waters. Or you even think of Jesus commanding the sea to become calm. That's all pointing to the sovereign authority of God, that he is withholding his judgment, symbolized by the floodwaters, by uh, keeping them in their place and preventing them from becoming a flood to wipe out life. It's God curbing the danger of this fallen creation. Does that make sense? All right, good. So what we have in this promise is a divinely imposed peace from God. Man is still at war with God, right? This is not a promise of salvation. It's a covenant of stability. So this covenant, it doesn't save man, doesn't give him a new heart, doesn't make him a new creation, but it's God putting himself at peace with man. Even though man is still in rebellion, there's this general peace enforcement on God's part in this covenant that the wickedness of man will be curbed significantly enough and long enough for God to work out his full plan of redemption, that the world is going to be a sufficiently stable environment for God uh, and his redemptive work. And so really, to summarize the promise of the covenant, it's a forbearance or a long-suffering on God's part towards sinful man. Um, and, And even in so doing... He acknowledges the sinfulness of man remaining. In verse 21, he says that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So even in entering into this covenant, God is doing so, acknowledging that man is not worthy of it, that man is still at war with him, man is still in rebellion, but God is going to enter into this gracious covenant nonetheless. And so what we have in this covenant is a guarantee of a measure of God's common grace, that God is going to sustain life broadly and restrain evil generally. It's not going to deteriorate and spiral out of control so much and on so grand a scale that God's people are in danger of being uh, exterminated, essentially, as was the case uh, at the time of Noah. So there's a measure of God's common grace. But notice also, there's no guaranteed amount of common grace that God promises. There are some times and places where the measure of God's common grace is greater than it is at other times and in other places, especially in places where God's people have a major impact. You're going to see generally just a much more abundance of common grace that people are going to have you know, generally better lives, more prosperous lives, doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be saved more, but where God's people have a greater influence, there's generally going to be a greater amount of common grace for all people. But in all places, there is some common grace. Man is never as wicked as he could be, uh, you know, thanks to the fall. Did you say that God is at peace with mankind because of, you know, his... Not at peace in the sense of, like, man is still guilty before God. That's a good question. I, don't, I might have not been clear enough. Man is still guilty before God and is at war with him, and God will execute judgment. I guess 
peace isn't the right word. A ceasefire is maybe a better word. That God is withholding the full execution of judgment until he's working out his final plan. So certainly not... I shouldn't have said that he's at peace right, with him. Okay. Yeah, no, but good good catch on that one because that wasn't wasn't a good word to use. Ceasefire would be a better word or a sort of, um, you know, yeah, a withholding of judgment is what's going on here. So those are the promises of the covenant. The precepts of the covenant, that's the covenant law. That's what man is required to do. That's what God says, you will do this uh, under this covenant. And so we find that if you look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, we see man's responsibility in this covenant arrangement. God says, uh, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And so we'll stop there for now with the precepts of the covenant. So, what we have here uh, fundamentally is a renewal of the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve at the initial creation. When God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. That's very similar to what he says here to Noah and his family. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he goes on about, you know, the beasts of the earth and all the creatures of the earth are going to be under the subjugation of man. And so there is that dominion aspect. So, The law of this covenant for man is this renewed cultural mandate uh, to to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And again, this even goes back to the promise. It assumes that there's going to be a level of continuity in the earth sufficient enough for man to accomplish this uh, this command, that life is going to continue. There's going to be... uh, there's, there's going to be the grace necessary for man to survive in the earth and to fulfill this commission. And it also, once again, reaffirms God's promise, that promises of Genesis 3, that he's going to bring the seed of the woman into the world to crush the head of the serpent. And that's all implicit as, okay, that's all continuing. That's going on and is protected. That project is being protected by the terms of this covenant. But although it does echo God's commission to Adam and Eve, it is essentially different from it. And that's mostly because man is in an entirely different circumstance here with Noah than Adam and Eve were before the fall in the garden. So the first thing, the reality of the curse of sin, uh, it means that fulfilling this commission to fill the earth, subdue it, uh, and have dominion is not going to bring man back to his original righteousness. You know, man can have we can have as much offspring as possible. We can have as much dominion over the earth and over the natural world as possible. None of that is going to bring man back to his original state of righteousness. And that means that these image bearers being produced by man being fruitful and multiplying are not going to automatically produce worshipers of God. You remember that with Adam and Eve, their commission was to fill the earth with God's image of people who would worship God. And we talked about how Eden was like a special temple of God where he was to be worshipped. And Adam and Eve were to make the whole earth a temple of God filled with his image bearers who would worship him. And they would do that by being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion. With Noah and his family... All the, uh, all the fulfillment of that commission in the world is not going to bring about the consummated kingdom of God like it would have with Adam and Eve. So they're bringing people into the world. They're bringing God's image into the world, but they're not automatically bringing worshipers of God into the world. The consummation of God's kingdom 
would only come through that promised seed. That's the promise that we're holding out hope for, not in fulfilling the cultural mandate like it was with Adam and Eve. Another big difference is that Noah and his family fulfilling this commission, it would be done largely by subjugation of the creation, which is now hostile. So when God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion over the earth, the earth wasn't cursed. The earth wasn't going to fight back against that. The earth was cooperative with God's law and with man's commission. But now, because the ground is cursed, because the whole earth is under this curse, the creation is hostile. It fights back. It's hard work. And so that's why you have this language. You don't see this with Adam and Eve. But when God says that the fear of you and the dread of you is going to be on all the creatures, that's an element of the fall. And it really indicates that the the dominion that man will have over creation is going to have to have an element of force and even an element of some domination that wasn't present at the time of Adam and Eve. And uh, it would be kind of a... Uh, a mastery over creation. Instead of with Adam and Eve, it was a wise authority ruling over creation. Essentially, man still called to rule over the creation, but now that rule would be attained through conflict instead of through peace, as it would have been with Adam and Eve. And that's a result of the fall. Any questions or anything on that? All right. Um, so man's duty under the Noahic Covenant is to create culture. That's the the law of this covenant, the precept of the covenant. And so although man is sinful, it's still God's desire to fill the earth with his image bearers, for man to rule over creation on his behalf, and uh, for man to really discover, to discern, to learn the usefulness of creation, and then to... uh, put everything that God made to good use or to try to find, you know, how can we use the plants and the minerals and the animals? How can we use all of these things to make them fruitful, to, uh, to, to do with them what God intended us to do with them and to build uh, culture as God's image bearers to, uh, you know, to create these functioning societies where we're able to live together, to pursue dominion as the image bearers of God. That's the foundational law of this covenant. It is to create culture using the natural world by having dominion over it. Any comments or anything? Excellent. So we have the promises, the precepts. Next one to talk about is the federal headship. So you remember, federal head is the person, the individual who God deals with in making the covenant. And this is important because it's the federal head of the covenant who tells us who all is included in it. So remember with Adam, God made the covenant with him. He was the federal head and all of his offspring were included in that covenant. So all of Adam's offspring either were blessed with him or were cursed with him. Last week, we talked about the first covenant that God made with Noah to save him and his family in the ark, and that was extremely narrow. God said, this is a covenant I'm making with you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives. That was it. For this one, Noah is federal head on a much broader level. So if you look at chapter 9, verse 9, God says, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. There's that blanket statement of Noah's offspring being included in the covenant. And so the federal headship, Noah is the federal head of the covenant, and he represents all of his offspring that will come after him. And so that includes us down to this day. We're the offspring of Noah, and so we're still included in this covenant. And so its terms are still binding on us. So all mankind is expected and required by God to participate in culture building, and all mankind still enjoys the blessings of God's common grace and his withholding of final judgment. So this covenant remains in in force today. It's still binding on us, although it's important to remember, because we're talking about be fruitful and multiply. We're talking about 
creating culture and establishing dominion, all that sort of thing, that is still uh, incumbent upon us today. We have a divinely ordained obligation to do those things. However, remember what we keep talking about in this class, that the mystery of Christ is slowly being unfolded. And um, as, as more and more of that mystery of Christ becomes revealed, uh, you're going to see the way that God's people function in the world is altered a little bit. And so even though we still have the requirements of this covenant, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ has a profound impact on how Christians go about building culture, establishing dominion, and executing this commission that God gave to Noah. And, you know, that that's a conversation that we'll have later on when we talk about Christ. But just keep in mind, that does alter the way in which we build culture and establish dominion and, you know, work towards the, you know, building of the kingdom of God. But just know that we do still have a divine obligation to be participating in the building of culture, having dominion over the earth, and uh, filling the earth with the image of God by being fruitful and multiplying. So you have all of mankind included in the covenant. But then it's also interesting that it even goes beyond that to the non-human creation. So if you go on in chapter 9, God says, or I'm sorry, into chapter 9, verse 10, God says, this covenant with you is with you, your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. And then uh, he goes down later on in verse 17, saying that this is the covenant I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the covenant doesn't just include Noah's offspring, the human race, but it includes all of creation, all creatures, all things are under the terms of this covenant. And so that means that all creation benefits from God's common grace. And you see that throughout the Psalms, that God gives a home for the animals, that he feeds the animals. Even when you think about God sending rain to make the earth fruitful, all of it, that's all a manifestation of God's common grace on this cursed creation that should bring forth nothing but death, God still allows it to be fruitful by his grace. And um, and also, all of creation, even the non-human creation, is a part of building culture. It's to be employed to the ends of creating and establishing culture. And so, like I said, mankind is supposed to look out at the natural world to discover all the usefulness of it, all the value of it, and to uh, put it to work in creating culture and in you know uh, in causing life and humanity to flourish. And you know, so you even talk about how we can use animals to do certain kinds of work, or we can use different plants for different kinds of medicines, and all that sort of thing is under this uh, this covenant mandate, and it includes the natural world. And also, you know, I just talked about, you know, when you have the fear and the dread from the animals, and so man is going to have to kind of impose a sort of dominion. That's true, but that ought to be curbed by a respect for the creation on the part of humanity. The fact that God saw fit to include all of creation in this common grace covenant should give us, as his people and as his image bearers, a healthy sort of respect and care for creation. And so, first of all, it limits the ends to which we use the created world. We don't just use the natural world to pursue whatever ends we want or whatever kinds of things we desire, whatever pleasures or you know fancies we have. We're to use it for a purpose, the purpose which God made it, and creating a good, flourishing culture. So it defines the ends to which we're to use the natural world. And it also means that we should have a level of care for the world. You know, it's I think that sometimes we can get turned off of that because of the kind of radical green environmentalism. But for Christians, you know, we should care for this earth. It is under this covenant. You know, things like extinction. God says that, you know, he's establishing his covenant with all of the animals, with all of creation. Christians shouldn't. You know, we should we should not want creatures to become extinct from the earth, creatures that God made. We should want them to survive. 
uh, we, you know, we should care about the, you know, we shouldn't just treat the natural world however we see fit. We should care about what we're putting into the earth and how we are to, uh, you know, care for it and maintain it. You know, we shouldn't be out just, you know, necessarily hunting just, you know, for sport and for no discernible useful ends. All of those things are worth us taking into consideration. Again, obviously that can be taken to a very radical and ungodly, idolatrous extreme, but... As Christians, we do care about the natural world because it is under the protection of this covenant of grace uh, that God makes here with Noah. All good? Does that make sense? All right, good. So, fourth thing, uh, the delegation of dominion. So we talked about that typically with God's covenants, it is, well, always, it is by covenant that God establishes and delegates authority in the earth. God exercises his authority through covenants with mankind. Um, and so with this covenant, first thing, we have a reaffirmation of man's authority over the kingdom of creation. Uh, and so you remember, in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve, the human race, kingly authority over the created world. But Adam specifically had a very special kind of kingship where he was a king under God who was called to defend the holiness of the garden, who was called to conquer the enemy who was threatening the garden. And of course, we saw that Adam failed in that. In this covenant, Noah isn't specifically made king the way that Adam was. But instead, what this covenant does, and this is really important, is that it focuses human authority in society. So broadly, all of mankind has authority and dominion over creation. But specifically, and if we talk about this covenant in terms of the command to build culture, it it gives a focus of authority in human society. And we see this in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Well, God says to man, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And what we have here is the uh, covenantal establishment for the first time of civil authority. So human authority already did exist before this time, right? Because Adam was the head of his wife, Eve, so there was that authority there. Even if you look at, you know, kind of the genealogies in Genesis chapters 4 and 5, there's the implication that there was sort of a tribal kind of authority in those, uh, in those communities. But for the first time here, there is a divinely, covenantally ordained civil authority, and we see this in that man is given sword power for the first time to execute justice for the shedding of innocent blood. God, for the very first time, says to man that for the shedding of human blood, there's going to be a recompense. There's going to be vengeance for that. Man is going to be given the authority to execute justice against those who would shed innocent blood. And it's really noteworthy that before this point in Genesis, you have the shedding of innocent blood, but you don't have this sort of means of dealing with it. So you remember after Cain killed Abel, you know, God sent Cain into exile and Cain was concerned that someone was going to take vengeance on him and kill him for killing his brother. And God said, no, I'm going to mark you so that that, that doesn't happen to you. And then later on, uh, Lamech kills a man for striking him, but there's no justice executed against him. But now you have this institution and this really is the seed of civil government right here in Genesis 9 where God supplies a means by which man uh, can execute justice against those who shed innocent blood. And again, for the first time, you have this kind of power and authority given to man with specific limitations on it. It's not like God hands the sword over to man and says, here you go, go crazy. But there's very specific limitations. For the shedding of man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. 
And this is a means of God ministering his common grace. So the promise of the covenant is a measure of common grace. But we know that God uses secondary causes and means to uh, provide for those promises. And one of the main means that he uses is civil government that God uses in order to restrain evil and maintain order. And because of this covenant arrangement, this is really important, it puts all duly appointed civil governments directly under God's covenantal authority where they're going to answer to him. All governing authority is under this commission where fundamentally you have this obligation to protect individuals, to protect families, and to protect uh, the cultural work of bringing creation under man's dominion, right? Because the, the sword power is given here to protect man as he goes about fulfilling the law of this covenant, going, being fruitful, multiplying, having dominion. So foundationally, all government is responsible to protect mankind as he goes about being fruitful, multiplying, and bringing the earth under his dominion. That's the, the foundational role of the civil state. It is a common grace institution for the common good. And I want you guys to turn over to Romans 13 because the New Testament does agree with this basic assessment. And again, like I said before, you know, even we talked about in the garden with Adam as a prophet and a priest and a king, this is this is all the seeds of what gets developed later. And obviously later in scripture, especially when we have God um, uh, installing the nation, the kingdom of Israel. We get an example there of what godly government looks like. And then after the, you know, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you actually have Christ seated on the throne with all authority. And so the kings of the earth are called to submit to the king of kings. All of that develops later on. But fundamentally, the role of civil government doesn't really change. So if you look at Romans 13, beginning in verse 4, what Paul says is to let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your, for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath of God on the wrongdoer. And then if you go down to verse 8, um, in this you know, same context, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so the picture that Paul paints in Romans 13 of the role of civil government is that it is ordained by God, instituted by him directly, and it is to be a means of grace and graciousness to God's people. It is designed for the good of God's people to reward the righteous, to punish the wicked according to God's law of love. And that's why I read that section about explaining God's law. That's how we know what's good and what's wicked, what should be praised, what should be punished, according to uh, God's universal moral law of love. And so that is, again, the, the role of the civil authority, according to this covenant with Noah, reaffirmed throughout Scripture, um, you know, is to be a restraining hand of God against wickedness, to seek for the good and the flourishing of human society by executing justice and enforcing God's universal creation law, punishing the wicked, rewarding the righteous according to that law. 
So that's the foundational role of civil government, and any government that doesn't do this is in violation of this covenant order, and they will answer for that before God. And so you even see this, like if we talk about the the purpose of this covenant being a, a, a common grace order where mankind is able to flourish, you see this um, where in places where the civil government acknowledges, even if not explicitly, but in practice acknowledges the law of God, you know, don't steal or we're going to punish you, don't murder or we're going to punish you, you generally see a much broader and more full pouring out of God's common grace. Life is just typically better for people when you have a government that actually punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. If you invert that, and if you have a government that rewards the wicked and punishes the righteous, then you're going to see a much uh, you're, you're going to see much less restraint on the part of sinful man. You're going to see wickedness that is bubbling under the surface of all man kind of lash out more and more, and you're going to see God's common grace begin to erode in a society. So the state instituted, given dominion and authority here in this covenant is an essential means by which God restrains wickedness and establishes this common grace order. Any questions on that? All over the place. Case in point, 2022. (laughs) I know. I know, Don. You work for the county, so you have the inside scoop on how it goes. You work for the city, yeah. Um, So there's the. What's up? I think that's um, a case for capital punishment, right? He's God's servant. He does not bear the sword in vain. Because there was a point in time where I didn't really, you know, believe in capital punishment after I came to the Lord. I mean, I really didn't think much about the death penalty or abortion or anything before mm-hmm. I, I came to Christ. You know, it's like, you know, whatever was going to happen, or, you know, I wasn't really too concerned about it. Mm-hmm. But um, when I became a Christian... I, I was concerned about these things, you know, because we're made in the image of God. Right. Automatically, it's wrong to, to kill unborn children. You know? mm-hmm. um, so, and uh, I also thought that if these people are executed and they don't know Christ, they'll end up in hell, you know. So, mm-hmm. they get more time to repent, you know, even after they committed these crimes, they could still be forgiven. And Somebody pointed out to me that this verse and convinced me that mm-hmm. it is biblical. Right, because the role of the civil government, even if you look here at Genesis 9, the role of that sword power is not to go and make disciples, right? That's the role of the church, of God's people. We go and make disciples. The government is concerned with executing justice. And so if somebody takes innocent life, then it's not for the government to worry whether that person knows Christ or not, but they as a matter of justice, have forfeited their life. And so that's why you're right. This is uh, part of the case for capital punishment in, you know, cases of shedding of innocent blood, taking innocent life. Yeah, um, I agree. And I just was saying that verse 4 could also just be the general application of God's law and judgment and even less severe. Right. Exactly. Because that's the thing. This covenant order, it withholds God's final judgment, the final execution, the cataclysmic judgment that wipes out the earth. However, there is still that temporal sort of execution of God's judgment, even like you said, through the means of the state for those who would break God's law. There's a type of judgment that comes from the state by the authority of God. And then you even see other forms of divine judgment that... Uh, it's it's not full and comprehensive, but it's kind of a taste of that final judgment. Like me making an arrest is right. That is a righteous. You know, if there's a if that's if there's just cause to be arrested, that's a righteous execution of judgment according to the law. Absolutely. Um, so lastly, then we'll look at the sanctions of the covenant. And this is so important because without sanctions, like we've said before, it's not a covenant. You don't have a covenant unless there are threatened penalties for violating the terms. Otherwise, you just have a promise or an oath, and that's meaningful. But a covenant requires that pledging of blood 
for violating the covenant. And oftentimes, you see the threatened sanctions in the covenant sign. And so in this case, the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. So you see uh, God says in, where is it, verse 13, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the rainbow is the sign of the covenant, and if we look at that, we can see the sanctions, because you have to have that threatened penalty if you're going to have a covenant. And there's two ways to interpret the rainbow. The one way is that, you know, this is the the bow. I mean, it is. It's a, you know, it's a bow and arrow, right? That's what the rainbow is. It's like a bow and arrow that's, you know, being pulled out. The one way of interpreting this is that this is the bow of God's judgment, but it's at a resting position. It's hanging down at his side because he is, like I said, there's this kind of ceasefire, a temporary sort of peace treaty that God's not executing judgment at this moment. And so the bow is at rest. It's not loaded and pointed. However, I think the better interpretation that actually shows us the threatened sanctions of the covenant is that this is God's bow of judgment, but it's pointed upwards at himself. So instead of you know the bow and arrow being pointed down, it's pointed up at God. He's aiming the bow at himself. And what this is, is what we call a self-maledictory oath, where God is saying, if I do not fulfill the promises of this covenant, then I will be accursed. Then I'm putting my own being on the line uh, in order to, you know, saying that I'm going to fulfill this covenant. We're going to see the same thing when we get to Abraham uh, next week. We'll see that. But this is God showing just his radical grace and guaranteeing this state of common grace over the whole earth. And what this shows as well is that no matter how worthy the world is of God's judgment, uh, God's wrath is going to be withheld until redemption is fully accomplished. And so when that rainbow appears, it's a reminder that God has pledged on his own life, as it were, that he is going to withhold that final judgment until all of his elect are gathered up until all of his plans of redemption are fulfilled. And this is also where you see, and I just want to mention this briefly, kind of the spiritual dimensions of the LGBTQ movement, that they use the rainbow as their symbol. And if we understand that you know all of life is spiritual and all of this is spiritual warfare, I'm not saying that you know the you know people who decided the rainbow is going to be the symbol for you know the gay movement you know kind of sat down and decided on this but the fact that they use that it really shows if you think about God's promise being no matter how worthy man is of judgment I'm not going to bring that final judgment until I've accomplished my purposes what the LGBTQ movement has really proven to be is a mocking of God withholding his judgment, you know, almost trying to provoke God to judgment, saying, okay, you're not going to judge. Well, what if we do all this crazy stuff? Now are you going to judge us? No, here's your rainbow. That's kind of uh, the the spiritual dimension to that. Again, I'm not saying that people sat down and thought this through, but you see that coming through. And it's kind of one of those moments where you're just reminded this this is spiritual warfare. This isn't just, you know, politics and culture wars. This is spiritual warfare. Do you have something to add? Well, I'm just thinking that as humans, people may might not have sat down and thought this through. But if we, being that there's good and bad, there's God and there's Satan, don't you think he may be sat down and thought some of that? Oh, well, yeah, of course. All of this <laughs> is according to God's providence. And yeah. so there is, there is a reason for all this that's happening, even down to the symbolism of the gay movement. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right about this. Okay. So, Wait, again, were just... You, were you talking about, like, the, the evil side of, of the aspect sitting down? No, because God controls over yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. So, don't you think he would have used that to, you know, just just like he did with Job to nudge, you know, mm-hmm. Satan tried to nudge God, but God nudged 
And it should also remind us that no matter how wicked and perverse this world has become, God's common grace is still here. And God still is going to withhold judgment. He's not going to finally say, that's it, that's enough. You know, I haven't finished my plan of redemption, but I'm coming in judgment anyway. No, none of this, nothing will, there's not going to be any final judgment until all of redemption is fulfilled. And so we see from this then that this is a covenant of grace. So we uh, distinguish between two different kinds of covenant. A covenant of works is one where God says, if you do this, I will bless you. A covenant of grace is God saying, I am promising to bless you, now go and do this. But the blessing is entirely independent of our performance. So like I said, no matter how wicked man is, no matter how much man may break God's law, no matter how rebellious man may be, God is not going to go back on his promise of providing that measure of common grace and of withholding his judgment until all things have been accomplished. So the formula is live and do this. This is the promise. Now here's how you're to act. Now individuals and families and nations and communities are going to be judged by God's law and are going to be judged on how we obeyed the law of this covenant. Were we seeking to build an established culture? Were we seeking to make use of what God's given us in the natural world to his glory? However, no matter how much we may misuse, no matter how much we may disobey and disregard God's commands, his covenant blessings are not going to be revoked. We can't lose the benefits of this covenant that God made with Noah. It's a covenant of grace. We can't forfeit them. Does that make sense? And so like I said, in Dom, you talked about with you know the civil government kind of being an execution of God's judgment. But even if you think about, you know, God throughout history has judged nations, he's judged families, he's brought them down. Those are those are executions of temporal judgment, but it's not anything like the global, catastrophic, comprehensive judgment of the flood or what will be at the final judgment. Like we said last week, there was nothing like the flood before in history. There's not going to be anything like the flood in history until the end of, all, the end of history. And so for the purposes of redemptive history, this promise amounts uh, to the guarantee – that no amount of man's wickedness is going to frustrate God's redemptive purposes. That's the hope of this covenant. That's why it's so important to the work of redemption, that God has now executed this big type of final judgment. He showed us the pattern of how he's going to work, judgment, redemption, new creation. And now God has established this new covenant order, this generally stable world of common grace in which he's going to execute his purposes, bring his seed into the world, and nothing that sinful man can do is going to stop that. Next week, we're going to talk about the next huge development in the execution of God's promise, and that's going to be the covenant that he makes with Abraham. Do you guys have anything to ask or to add tonight? I just wanted to really emphasize that this is a covenant of grace, and grace is only available because of Christ's sacrifice and how both in this covenant and in the Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise of judgment, and it's a promise of judgment on God in both cases, and how yes. you know, we only have this covenant of grace and this general grace on the earth because of what Christ is going to do slash for us has done. And it's really important for us to always keep our eyes on that because that's what all of Scripture is about, is that, that covenant of grace that, from Christ's redemptive sacrifice for us. Exactly, because the only way that God can say, I'm going to delay this final judgment, is if he has a plan to deal with it in Christ. Um, and you know, Like you mentioned, all of Scripture is pointing forward to that. And like we've been talking about, you know, when we look at covenant theology, we're looking at that step-by-step unveiling of the mystery of Christ. So you have that promise in Genesis 3. He's bringing this second king into the world that's actually going to conquer the enemy. Now, you know, you have this, these hints of God is promising harm against himself. He's threatening, he's saying that if I don't fulfill this, then I'm going to be the one who suffers the consequences. And that's a little bit strange. And you're right, we find, we see that made clear in the cross where it is God the Son 
suffering the consequences of sin. So these are all little bits uh, that are kind of working its way to the grand unveiling of the finished work of Christ. Absolutely. Yeah, what's up? So with um, God using wicked nations to judge his people throughout history, and um, so fast forward to now what we're learning about with, you know, how we should infuse, um, I don't know, how do I put this, like with the whole lesser magistrate's doctrine of um, holding, you know, being involved in government because Mm -hmm. we're under wicked government right now. So at what point do we just, like, say, okay, God's hand, just like he was using some wicked nations to judge Israel and Judah, mm-hmm. and so now God could be using our government to judge his people here. Mm-hmm. So where's that balance where we are supposed to turn back that tide as far as getting involved in government and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, that's one of those things where we don't know exactly what God is doing. We kind of infer, but we don't know exactly what God is doing today and how he's doing it. For us, it's always better to think about where God has placed us in his providence. What are my obligations? You know, what, like I am, you know, a husband, a father, an elder in the church, a member of the church, and a citizen of this nation. So what are my obligations in all of those offices? And so if you're talking about involvement in government, consider, okay, I am a citizen. That's a you know real status, and so I have real obligations to the nation I'm living in, even if it's a wicked government. And what has God given me the means and the ability to accomplish as a citizen? And I would say that we should continue to try to engage in whatever way we can until, you know, as much as we're able until we're not able to anymore. That's, you know, for us, we should be looking at what are my circumstances? What's God, uh, you know, what are my obligations with where God has put me? Anyone else? All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your abundance of grace and Lord, The grace that you show forth in Christ is just so incomprehensible to us. And so because of that, Lord, you have carefully explained it to us and showed it to us through symbols and through types and through events and through people and through covenants, Lord God, to help us to better understand the depths of the riches of your grace, Lord, that you have freely entered into covenant with us, that you have freely delivered us from our transgressions, that, Lord, you yourself have taken the judgment for our sin. And, God, I pray that as people who are in the position where we can look back at the whole of your redemptive history and see the glory of it from beginning to end, that, God, we would be those who would be living truly as a new creation in Christ Jesus, that we would be living as faithful stewards of what you've given to us. Lord, that we would take seriously our very real obligations under your authority, Lord God, that we would live our lives before your face and seek to do all that you've called us to do to the glory of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for our uh, renewed status before you, that we are cleansed of our unrighteousness, that we have passed through the judgment if we are in Christ. And God, I do pray that, again, you would just give us the, the grace and the strength to live as people who have passed through that judgment and who are now, Lord, uh, to be those new creatures and to be proclaiming and heralding the coming of the kingdom of God, making disciples and teaching them. Father, I pray that we would never cease to worship you, to glory in you, to boast only in the work of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.